For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How do you feel about getting older? Maybe you're so young that it feels like a world away. Or maybe you're like me, wondering where the time went. Or like this week's guest, who reinvented her career in her 60s, going from college professor to Instagram star and being described as one of fashion's finest dressed people. Since then, she's been written about a thousand times as a sort of poster woman for growing older stylishly. But now she's examining further what it means to be old and what we think about that word from old people to old houses to old things. Does old still have a stigma? And how does it relate to slow, slowing down, slow fashion, appreciating things that have been around a bit? Are we on the brink of a new old revolution? Now, I'm going to read you some lines written by her. She says, I'm going to keep saying I'm old over and over until it drains all the pejorative connotations from the word and the exuberant proclamations like 60 is a new 40, which still seems to imply younger is better. She's a great writer. She is Lynn Slater, aka Accidental Icon, and she joins us from upstate New York. You're going to love this one. And I'd love your help sharing it, actually. So please do, if you love the episode, remember to hit subscribe and share it with your friends or on social media. You can find me, as usual, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. Okay, let's hear from Lynn. Lynn, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. I'm very happy that we're doing this. We've been chatting about it for a while. Yes, I'm really happy that we finally got the chance to do it. Do you want to begin just by telling us where you are? Because you are in a, in a new area, aren't you? You've moved. Yes, I have. I'm in a small city on the Hudson River, about an hour north of New York City called Peekskill. Last time we talked, you were living in New York City and I called you during the sort of worst, potentially, part of the COVID crisis or the most stressful beginning of that. Do you remember? I do. We were having this conversation about sustainability, weren't we? Yes, we were. And I think it was almost around the time of Fashion Revolution Week, which actually was very transformative for me that year. Where was your apartment? It was on the Upper East Side, close to East Harlem. It was 600 square feet, and our only recourse for any kind of fresh air was a roof on the top of our building that you had to sign up for, and only one person could be up there at a time. I do remember a friend telling me that the city felt like it was pulsing with sirens, and it was like a kind of almost war zone, like just the COVID thing was so frightening. When I went up on the roof, that was really, really what you heard. It was siren after siren after siren. I live just a couple of blocks from a major hospital. And in a way, it reminded me of after 9-11, the days immediately after where all you heard were sirens. Mm. Something was, for me being knocked down and destroyed, kind of like those buildings. It was very much being in a small space, mm. which 
before COVID, I realized was more like a crash pad for me. Because you're always out and about. I was constantly out and about. You know, I had just returned from Paris, not that long before COVID hit. And the other thing that was really startling to me was the racks of clothes and the piles of gifts that, you know, were sent to me. Many of the gifts not even opened because of just the constant magnitude of it. Perhaps many listeners relate, albeit in different ways, that the way you lived was sort of put under a microscope because we were all stuck at home and suddenly, you know, the walls close in and you're like, I mean, for me, I know this sounds so trite, but I was like, why have I got such a terrible kitchen? I never even noticed <laughs> that I had such a terrible kitchen. But in a bigger picture sense, we looked at around us and thought, potentially, where is the meaning here? It's like you're forced to examine your close existence, you know? Yeah. D- did that happen to you? It absolutely did. My partner, Calvin, is my photographer. He was home as well. Well, a lot of people get divorced. I was going to say, no, no, the, COVID, we, the other COVID thing that happened is a lot of people looked at their fa- their partners and went, oh, no, yes. not me, no, luckily. No, we, we actually began to appreciate each other more. I still had to produce content during this time, but I had to do it in the 600-square-foot apartment. Okay, for listeners who don't know you, Lynn, you are an academic, a professor of social welfare, but you're also a fashion influencer. You've got about three quarters of a million followers on Instagram and you blog at Accidental Icon. Just tell us briefly a little bit about your fashion career and how it unfolded. Well, I was feeling really uninspired and very constrained in academia when it came to how I wanted to express myself. And it also corresponded with turning 60 and really having to confront the sort of creeping ageism that I was beginning to experience. And I'm a very rebellious individual. And I think this was unconscious, but when I look back on it, my choice to start a blog about fashion And putting myself on Instagram and social media was sort of like me giving the finger to the world saying, if you think I'm going to be invisible, you have another thing coming. (laughs) How, How long ago was it when you started? In 2014. When I first started my blog, we always had this very minimal kind of way of doing things. And so most of my clothes at the time were from consignment shops. I had a lot of Japanese designers. When I first began, all our photos were in black and white because that's the only digital camera that Calvin had. (laughs) We didn't have any fancy sets or events. So we were pretty much just going on the street in New York all different neighborhoods, nothing glamorous. But I think because it was different, it really started to catch the eye of a lot of independent magazines and people who were thinking of fashion in a more artistic way. 
And I got a lot of interesting jobs during that time that were really much more about creativity. You know, I worked with a lot of creative people and we invented all these personas. And at some point, that began to change. And I think it changed when I got representation. And I started to work with a lot more brands and make more money on Instagram. And I think we lost that artistic vibe. And to bring it back to COVID, we had to refine that because we were in such constrained circumstances. And so things really changed. And we, in a way, went back to our beginning. And I realized how lost I had become. Really? Yeah. You used the phrase, I wrote it down. You said you felt that at some point you had become a commodity in a way. Yes. What did you mean by that? My personality and my uniqueness sort of left and I became this one of many who just was someone who sold things. Mm. I feel like that all the time, Lynn. I've got this thing where I, um, I want it to be this personal story or this deep insight into someone's character or, you know, maybe you've got a book to sell, but generally speaking, nothing to sell here works best for me. But that isn't really how fashion works, is it? Fashion's always, what are we selling? Yes, it is. It's always about what are we selling? So how do we bring those things together? I mean, that, I think this is very interesting because obviously creativity is what drove you and me too to this in the first place. And all these, you know, it's lovely, isn't it, to create, you said the word persona before, to dress up and communicate through clothes. But that is not really, it doesn't sit that well with the kind of rampant hyper-consumerism that has now gone hand in hand with fashion, right? That's right. And, you know, this comes up in interviews all the time. People say, oh, have you always been interested in fashion? And my response is, I've always been interested in clothes as a way to express who I am. And to me, that's different than fashion. And fashion is a whole, whole big system. And I think more of clothes as sort of a palette I have available to me to express who I am. So I don't like to do, I never hardly do trends. I am not concerned with what other people are wearing. And for me, it's deeply personal. For you, the experience of COVID seems to have encouraged you to start questioning why you were doing what you were doing and whether or not you had drifted a little bit far from how you began in terms of purpose. But I did just want to ask you about what you think happened to us societally during this time and this kind of collective rush to return to normal, As, especially from a New York perspective. Just tell us about that. What did you see and can we even go back to normal? Should we even try? <laughs> well, I personally can never go back. And I don't think that we should go back 
to where we were before. And I've been feeling lately, initially in the early days of COVID, I started to feel this increasing optimism because people were talking about this simpler life and sustainability and consumerism and fashion was saying, we have to change and we're going to do it different. And, you know, in some of my blog posts, and I, I have a really amazing group of women who read my blog and they're very different from the Instagram crowd. Yeah, because they have whole conversations in the comments. Yes, yes, they do. And we started this conversation, like, what would fashion look like that really was about, you know, the community and social justice and uh, the earth and what does that mean? And even our feelings that we had to work through of loving clothes so much, but then now feeling guilty. Yes. Right? And so what were we going to do? And so I I was feeling optimistic. I started to become a bit elated. And now as I see the return... I see so many of these people who were having these conversations now going on events, climbing back into jets, you know, doing all of the things that they were questioning. Climbing back into jets? What? Like influencers, you mean, flying off to the shows? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't see anyone climbing in a jet. (laughs) Yeah, I see. Well, there was a big conversation about Maybe we shouldn't fly so much and maybe virtual fashion shows are really the best thing. And, you know, think of all the jet fuel when you're traveling to Paris or, you know, people are coming from all over the world. These were the conversations. Where are they? Do you think it's like we're just so tired of the relentless slog of how difficult it has been in so many different ways over the past year or so that people just want some escape. I was reading the phrase revenge spend recently, and I can never remember where. I think it was business of fashion, but essentially saying that after the worst of the pandemic, obviously it's still with us, there's a kind of urge to just go go nuts, buy as much stuff as you can. I've I've had enough of my tracksuit trousers. I'm just going to go crazy. Well, here's the interesting thing and a wonderful benefit of being older. The research tells us that actually the most emotionally healthy people during the pandemic were older people. And so what older people were doing, right, was not feeling, oh, this is so horrible and we're so deprived, but looking at, at it as an opportunity to do something new, something that they never had time for. They're painting. Women have gone back to school to learn textile design. And so for them, it's not that they need to go out and, you know, buy a million things to make them feel better because they had such a bad time. It was, I've really reinvented my life in really wonderful ways and reconnected with nature and you know, done things that if I had kept on that 
you know, treadmill, I never would have had the moment, right? So, so here's one of the good things about getting old. I love that you just brought that up, Lynn. On April the 10th, you published a blog post called How to Be Old. I loved it. We talked about this the other day. You opened it. I'm very attracted to all things old right now. And then you listed houses, furniture, trees and clothes, even women writers you you listed. And then you were saying you hope that you can learn some secrets from them about how to be old. Somewhere during the past year, I've accepted that I'm old and I feel no shame and no despair about it. In fact, I decided to inhabit it completely and explore it as unknown territory. Yes, it's my new artistic challenge. I found this little exercise that is from design thinking, and I applied it to thinking about how to be old. And when I put it out on my blog, the responses from the women were amazing, but it's called The Rose, The Thorn, and The Bud. And the rose are all those wonderful parts of being old where you're discovering who you are. And I think, you know, David Bowie has this great quote about aging. He said, aging is this extraordinary time when you become the person you were always supposed to be. Oh, how gorgeous. And that's how I I love him. (laughs) I do too. He's my icon. The rose is really the wonderful parts of being older. And there are many of them, particularly around issues like really not caring what other people think. Not that you are not empathetic, you are, of course, but you don't let other people define you in any way. You're really kind of comfortable, you have a lot of experience, you've weathered a lot of crises, you know that you can do it, and now that you've kind of dealt with all your responsibilities and you've sort of made your way in life, you can do the things that you really want to do and that give you pleasure and not because you have to maintain a family and a household and, you know, all of those other things. And the thorn is the reality. And so, you know, an example when I did this on my blog was this woman said the rose was she was having her very first exhibition in a gallery. She had become a painter The thorn was that it takes a good hour in the morning for her not to be stiff because of her arthritis. And the bud is, what is something that we can look forward to? And here's where technology can play a really big role. And that really is, what do we need to support us as we have limitations to continue to live our best life and not in a way that is speaking to your frailty or, you know, a deficit point of view, but in a way that really props you up and helps you live that life that you want to live when you're older. How old is your mom? My mother is 94. Incredible. Yes. (laughs) What did she teach you about aging? What my mother taught me about aging is 
what a time of life it can be to sort of self-reflect and to really accept your life as it was and to feel good about what you did, even though there were some things that perhaps you would have changed. But to have this calmness Mm. that she has about facing death, I guess, is what I learned. Is it all, I mean, that's amazing, but there's so many things in that. I was thinking, is it almost a sort of end to striving to be something? It's almost like an acceptance. Is that right? That is so perfect because she is 100% comfortable where she is right now. And she has a very small life, actually, but her life is about all of us, her children. And the things in life that give her pleasure, like reading and doing her crossword puzzles. And, you know, the other day, my brother brought her this old quilt and she just wrapped herself in it and sat in her chair and was just, I feel so wonderful. We started off talking about COVID and what it taught us about potentially looking at what's important in life, I guess. I know that you'd written quite a few blog posts about slowing down. It was on your blog that I read about a magazine called Delayed Gratification Magazine. (laughs) I'd never heard of it. Fantastic. But this idea that the tiny things do count and that when we're faced with something huge and frightening like COVID or, I don't know, struggling with the reality of systemic racism or whatever it is, climate change, whatever it is that's enormous and frightening, and depressing that the little things and the slow things take up more space or they they can if we allow them to maybe what do you think i think slow enables you to do so many things like being in the moment appreciating you know like my mother a moment of comfort i think what that magazine was about also is When you slow yourself down, you can incorporate history. And that is what their magazine is, which basically is they keep coming back to a story. Because the way that we read news or events now is there'll be a big commotion about it, and then it goes away. And you never see how it gets resolved Oh yeah, or if it does. And so their view is they have way less stories, but the stories they choose to tell, they follow and they keep telling you about it. And they keep saying, and this is what happened. And then this is what happened. And I think we've become ahistorical because everything is so moving so quickly. This whole idea of slow down, take time, think more, react less maybe, I'm not sure. That's all gorgeous, isn't it? And yet people think slowing down is negative. People think, oh, you're old and slow now. (laughs) That's not very appealing. The world's speeding up. Why don't you want to hurry up? All that, what do you think? Well, you know, again, I think we're, 
you know, I'm not a person who sees things as either or. But I think, you know, social media, for example, let's take Instagram. When I first started on Instagram, it was very inspirational. If I put up a post, people would be pretty much guaranteed to see it, my followers. And now because of the algorithms, you have to post at a speed, you have to post at a quantity, you have to post so much in order to be seen or you drift away. And that kind of happened during COVID too. I, I just realized how exhausting that is. And I, for one, am not going to compete against an algorithm. If I'm going to have a competition, I'd rather have it be about <laughs> with another person doing something really interesting. But I think our brains now are changed. And our brains change when we interact with our environment. And so our brain is now wired to not go slow. Yeah. And that was the interesting thing about COVID is that our bodies had to stop. And for many, many people, their mind followed suit. And so now, you know, the bodies are back on the move. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm already seeing it. There, there's like a frenzy. Don't forget mm. me. Don't forget me. Don't mm. forget me. And, and I can't even scroll anymore because I get exhausted from that. <laughs> you said the mind is on the move or the body's on the move. You're yeah. physically on the move. We started by talking about how you shifted out of New York City up to Peekskill. Let's talk about that and also about your wonderful old house. You've used that hashtag, haven't you? Yes. A new old you, a new old yes. house. <laughs> yes, because... It, it has some elements of sort of the grand, decadent Victorian, like a tower with a room in it, which I'm sitting in. But the majority of the house is built in the arts and crafts style. As a result of, of COVID and the quarantine and the lack of contact with nature and also with my family, my daughter and my granddaughter. It, it's so interesting to me because when Calvin and I talked about, you know, our later life and how we would live it, it was always in a big city. You know, we saw ourselves in this industrial loft and, you know, continuing to be in the buzz and the moving and shaking in a city. And so this was a very different idea for us. We were almost kind of shocked by it. But we wanted to live closer to family. And we looked at a couple of places. And what we love about Peekskill is that it is a small city and Yet it's a historic city, is filled with gorgeous old buildings and homes and um, has a very rich history, you know, both good and bad. And it's a very diverse city, which is 
interesting, given that we're still in Westchester County, which is a very elite kind of suburb of, of the city. Because in the city, it's sort of a city that's becoming, like people have rediscovered it. A lot of young families over the last five years from Brooklyn, you know, have moved here to have more space, to raise their kids in a different environment. And so there's a lot of creativity going on, a lot of great little restaurants and new shops coming. And there was always was a artistic community. There's a lot of music. And so it meets our need for some of that stimulation. But at the same time, we're about a two-mile walk away from that downtown. Our, our property borders on a huge nature preserve. There's only 10 houses on our street, and they're all houses that were built between 1912 and 1920. And so we decided on an old house because we wanted to have a new creative project that, you know, because we got back in touch with sort of crafts during the COVID you know, Calvin went back to his black and white. He was using his film camera more. I guess we were having much more of an analog life and and kind of discovered that we liked it. And I started to fool around with taking apart my clothes and putting them back together in a different way. I, yeah, you were sewing. You were sewing and upcycling. I was sewing and I actually remember back when I was a kid in the late 1950s, my grandmother and my mother teaching me how to knit and embroider. And I became really enthralled with embroidery and writing text on a bunch of my clothes and then embroidering it. And so we, we said, wow, let's get an old house and we'll do it ourselves and we'll not buy new furniture and we'll not fill up our house with furniture. We'll live in our house. We'll see what it wants us to have. Was it about a voluntary simplifying or was that accidental, like icon accidental? But was it, did you think actually we're going to we didn't downsize because you're upsized in terms of space, but yes. you're going to voluntarily cut a lot of stuff out. Did you yes. do that? And slow down. And we also wanted to be in a place where there was a real close sense of community where we could know our neighbors, know what the issues are. You know, I've already been to a bunch of meetings, political meetings. I've been finding out what the issues are in this community and just kind of letting people know this is my skill set. Tell me, you know, how I could contribute and be of use. I wonder if you might talk to us about giving back and being a useful member of society and purpose. We mentioned at the beginning that 
you're also a professor of social work. Your background is in social work. What, what got you into social work in the first place? Um, one of the things that I really liked about social work, and I chose it over psychology, and my first master's was in criminal justice. Really? Yes. And I was working with delinquent girls, actually. And that's what they were called at the time. I was about to say, we can't surely use such a phrase, but right. No. And when I first began in the early 70s, that's what they were called. And, and they what were, were liter- they? Unmarried mothers or something? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> the interesting thing, and this is what I learned, and this is how I turned to social work, is, you know, they were placed in these locked institutions, and I worked in one of them, for things like running away, promiscuity. You know, the word promiscuity was actually on court papers. Yeah. And as I worked in these institutions, which were 24 hours a day, I would have to comfort you know, these young women when they woke in the middle of the night screaming with nightmares. And over time, listening to them, I realized that, you know, 99% of them had experienced abuse in some form, some kind of trauma, and that this was not a criminal matter. And so I wanted to have tools to deal with it in a way that just looked at the total picture. And so social work, I love because it really analyzes people at multiple levels. It looks at the individual, the family, the group, the community, the society, and the big culture that is the big circle around all of that. And then how do they all interact together? And that the environment can be shaped in such a way to make people healthier and happier. So interesting, Lynn. And and the person in the history of social work who really espoused that view was Jane Addams. And she's known more as a progressive, and she was a pacifist, and she was one of the founding members of the NAACP. She you know, was known more for her social welfare work. But she decided, along with her partner, and over time we've come to learn that, you know, she was most likely a lesbian and had a companion throughout her life and figured out a way to live with that in an acceptable way. And she also figured out how to run a household without being married to a man. And this was all in the late 1800s. And so she was able to buy this house in Chicago. Hull House. Hull House. And she basically, again, I'm kind of, it just hit me as you're making me remember this history, that what I'm doing in Peekskill is what she did because she basically, with her partner, stood on the porch of the house and waited. And it was in a huge immigrant community. Lots of issues with poor factory conditions. You know, the Industrial Revolution was at full height. And she waited and waited and waited. 
And finally, one day, this woman came up to her and said, I see you're standing on your porch and you're not doing anything and handed her her infant and said, I have to work in the factory. And my seven-year-old usually watches the infant, but I want the seven-year-old to go to school. So watch my baby, make yourself useful. And that was how Hull House started a nursery. And that is how she expanded everything that she did. So what are you waiting for? I don't know. That's what I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm putting, I'm putting myself in peak skill, putting myself in places. I'm asking questions. And I'm kind of saying, you know, where can I be of use? But what I loved about what she did also is that her house was life-giving because she included an introduction to art and theater and crafts. And she actually held the first meeting in the U.S. of the Crafts Society. And many people who were parts of the arts and craft movement in the U.S. used to hang out in her coffee house and in her living room and have conversations about these things. So what an amazing woman she was, she was, and she was very influenced by John Ruskin and our friend, William Morris. I told you that last week's interview and listeners who've heard that one with JB McKinnon will know this, that we started talking about William Morris, the great arts and crafts designer from the UK. And Lynn, I I collected this quote for you uh, when I was just doing a bit of research about him. It's from uh, a newspaper article about him, and I just loved it. It says, William Morris was driven by the two abiding rages in his life against ugliness and injustice in capitalist society. So he couldn't stand ugliness and he couldn't stand injustice, and he linked them to capitalism. I just think it's fascinating. I feel the same. Ah, exactly. Okay, I've got a quote for you from William Morris. If you want a golden rule that will fit everybody, this is it. Have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. Love it. Thank you, Lynn. This has been joyful. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What a great interviewer you are. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you.